You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. When you're in the middle of a transition, it's quite easy for both sides to portray themselves as either upsetting the apple cart or keeping the apple cart broadly stable. As we go through this energy transition, the entire economy is going to have to decarbonize. For January 24th, 2024, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. The annual UN Climate Summit known as COP28 took place in December and generated the usual sort of commentary in the press, although this one seemed unusually charged politically given the fact that it was hosted by an OPEC nation, and it seemed to have a note of new urgency given the heat records that were busted all across the world in 2023. But in today's soundbite media world, it's hard to find coverage that goes much deeper than the same endlessly repeated highlights. What does the new agreement to transition away from fossil fuels really mean, and how should laypeople interpret it? Is that a ceiling or a floor on the global ambition on climate? Can the electrification of vehicles eliminate demand for oil as a road transport fuel? And what about the sectors where substitutes for petroleum are not yet widely available, like petrochemicals, aviation, and shipping? Is phasing out oil use completely, as we discussed with the IEA in the previous episode, really feasible? To help us explore these questions beyond the surface level, we are joined today by Anand Gopal, an expert who has been studying energy and climate for over two decades. He is currently the Executive Director of Policy Research at Energy Innovation, an energy transition think tank based in San Francisco. Previously, he managed grant making for clean power and transportation for the Environment Program at the Hewlett Foundation. And prior to that, he was a research scientist in clean energy and transportation at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. He is also vice chair of the board at the International Council on Clean Transportation, among other board positions. He has a wealth of experience in seeing clean energy policy crafted in the U.S. and has a unique perspective on it. In today's conversation, we'll discuss the outlook for oil demand, we review the findings from several of Energy Innovation's recent reports, and we get Anand's first-person observations from this year's COP. Then in the news segment, we'll examine a new vision for CCS in the UK, we'll salute a bold new decarbonization goal for seven major European countries, we'll applaud a green light for the world's largest offshore wind farm, we'll check out a new Canadian policy to transition to zero emission vehicles, and we'll note yet another setback for nuclear power in the UK. And now, our conversation with Anand Gopal, recorded December 19th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Anand, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. Today we're going to talk about what happened at the COP28 Climate Summit in early December. You attended the summit meeting in Dubai, so I'm eager to hear your personal observations about it. But just to set the stage a bit for our listeners who may not be completely up to speed on the subject, this is an annual meeting of representatives from the world's nations organized through the United Nations, and its key objective is to review progress toward the overall goal of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, which is to limit climate change. It's called the Conference of the Parties, or COP, and the one that happened in December was the 28th such meeting, known as COP28 for short. Under the rules of the meetings, all 198 countries at the summit must agree on a joint statement or there is no deal. 
And this one was particularly challenging because it was hosted by the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, one of the top Arab oil producers and a member of OPEC. And it was chaired by Sultan Al-Jaber, who, in addition to acting as president of COP28, is also CEO of the Abu Dhabi oil giant, Adnoc. So to say that there was a bit of a conflict of interest inherent in this COP from the get-go is putting it mildly. So let's just start with the headline. The final global stock take draft text said that the countries agreed on, quote, transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science, end quote. An earlier draft included language about a phase out or a phase down of fossil fuels, which was deleted under pressure from OPEC producers. The parties also agreed to triple global renewable generation capacity and double energy efficiency improvements by 2030. And predictably, reactions to the final agreement were mixed. Enthusiastic observers pointed out that this was the first time that fossil fuels had even been mentioned by name in the text of a COP agreement in its nearly three-decade history, and that securing the objective to, quote, transition away from fossil fuels was in itself an historic achievement. Finally, the energy transition is formally recognized as a global objective. Dissatisfied observers pointed out that the final text lacked any firm commitments to eliminating the use of fossil fuels and was full of loopholes that would allow the use of fossil fuels to continue. It did not secure a path to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees C, and it did not specify any quantifiable targets. Nor were there any new financial commitments to helping developing countries with their own transitions, although a new fund was launched with $771 million in pledges by developed countries to help pay for loss and damage owing to climate change in developing countries. But that's a tiny fraction of the estimated adaptation finance needs of developing countries, which they put at 215 to $387 billion per year. Now, obviously, success is a squishy thing to measure here, but what's your take? Was this summit a success in your view? Depends on your perspective, Chris. If you measure success against the abysmally low expectations going into a COP that was chaired by the CEO of a national oil company, then ending it with language that calls for a transition away from fossil fuels is a success. <laughs> but if you're part of the climate community, of which I count myself as a member, needing 28 cops to finally have vague texts that we need to transition away from fossil fuels, which everyone knows are the main cause of the climate problem, is woefully weak. Yeah. But there's some good news. You know, regardless of the weak commitments at COP, the IEA forecasts that fossil fuels will peak this decade, driven by structural technological changes in the global energy system. I'm sure we'll dig into that as we go along today. Yeah. Well, the agreement also, uh, the agreement text also recognizes that in the IPCC's sixth assessment, quote, global greenhouse gas emissions are projected to peak between 2020 and at the latest before 2025 in global model pathways that limit warming to 1.5 degrees C with no or limited overshoot, end quote. And just a quick note to our listeners that we discussed the aspects of the sixth assessment that seemed most relevant to our show back in episodes 172 and 173 in May of 2022, for those who didn't listen to those. But in the various news reports that I saw about COP28, some said that the text says global greenhouse emissions were, quote, likely to peak between 2020 and at the latest before 2025, end quote, while others called it a pledge to ensure that fossil fuel emissions peak by 2025. 
Are those interpretations correct? Because it looks to me like the text does not call for a peaking of fossil fuel emissions at all. In fact, the text says that, quote, significantly greater emissions reductions are required to align with global greenhouse gas emissions trajectories in line with the temperature goal of the Paris Agreement and recognizes the urgent need to address this gap, end quote, and recognizes that, quote, deep, rapid, and sustained reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions, end quote, are still needed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C. So which is it? Unfortunately, you are correct. And some of these news reports have exaggerated what the commitment was. Hmm. This text simply states what IPCC modeling says is required to limit warming to under 1.5 C. It does not in any way commit to making reality match that modeled outcome. In fact, earlier in the text, if you look at the agreement, it notes with concern that the latest IPCC synthesis report that implementation of the current NDCs would only reduce emissions by 2% in 2030 relative to 2019. And that's a far cry from the 43% reduction that the IPCC same report says is needed to stay under 1.5. So Mm -hmm. this is a nice media spin at the end of it, but unfortunately the text doesn't quite commit anyone to do any of that stuff that is required to stay under 1.5. Right. So in effect, at least as far as the science is concerned, there was absolutely nothing new here. I mean, it was all well documented in the previous sixth assessment from the IPCC. And just a quick note to our listeners who may not know what NDCs are, that's the nationally determined commitments, which countries voluntarily have committed to reduce their emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. So look, I don't think anyone who has followed the progression of the cops over the years would be even remotely surprised (laughs) that oil and gas producers managed once again to scuttle a binding agreement to phase them out. Arguably, that's been their entire objective in these conferences from day one going back 28 years. They have consistently shown up at these conferences in order to make sure that they do not actually make any progress against their goal in as much as that requires the oil and gas producers to reduce their output. And yet, outside of the fossil fuel industry, those of us in the climate world, there seems to be more agreement than ever that eliminating the use of fossil fuels is absolutely essential to stopping global warming. Certainly, no serious observers outside of the oil and gas industry believe any of the claims about how unproven CCS technologies might allow their continued use while also limiting warming to the agreed targets. That's just a fantasy. So how should policymakers and laypeople view this disconnect? And what should the public understand about how the sausage is actually made at a COP? Yeah, so let me take on your last question first. What's the COP and how are things decided? You know, these annual COP meetings suffer from a persistent mismatch that we always see between expectations and outcomes. And I think that's because a lot of casual climate observers who pay attention to climate when the cops are on because the global media is focused on it, they all think that this is where the most ambitious climate policies are determined. And they're invariably disappointed when a consensus-driven process that includes all the world's biggest climate laggards, you know, the final results show up in a watered-down agreement that always lands with a thud in overtime, so everyone's sleep-deprived, and it's never exciting how they end. The important thing for people to know is the reality is the COP outcomes are always the floor, not the ceiling for global climate policy. And we know this because the world's laggards have complete veto power, but also even the people who in the countries who are willing to do more 
typically in their NDCs commit to less than what they can achieve inside their own geographies. Classic examples of these are two very large emitters, China and India. If you actually assess their NDC, many of them are quite well on track with their own business as usual trajectories to meet those. So when you view it that way, you know, we can celebrate that in this particular COP that climate politics and clean technology have progressed so far that the saboteurs of the COP, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the petrostates, could not prevent the transition away from fossil fuels language for the first time. Mm, that's a good point. And I think this idea that the COP outcomes are the floor and not the ceiling is well made because I don't think that is widely understood. Okay, so going back to the first part of my question, how should people understand this disconnect? How should lay people interpret the fact that the oil and gas industry has maintained this line that they don't have to do anything different in terms of output, that they can maintain their business and that they can rely on CCS or some other magic to reduce their emissions, while the entire scientific community and climate community says, no, you guys have to go to zero. Yeah, this is a really important thing. The oil and gas industry in general, not only them, but many, many players who have a pretty strong interest in the perpetuated use of fossil fuels, almost always lean on CCS as a technology that can continue the sale of their own product while limiting the effect on climate or limiting the damage to climate. And they're just flat out wrong. CCS is limited by so many different factors, not the least of which is cost. It is an extremely expensive technology with very few actual proven working installations on the ground after 30 plus years of trying. And a handful of very significant high profile and very expensive failures, Correct. I might add. Correct. Yeah. And even the so-called successes end up with capture rates that are quite limited, well under the 90 plus percent you need for you to be able to use fossil fuels at the rate that these guys want to use it at. Yeah. So everyone should understand that there is no way we're going to meet our climate goals by continued use of fossil fuels and then just capture them at the end of their combustion cycle. That is not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. We need solutions that are going to be able to transition people to be able to use energy services that they want and need and are entitled to, but do so without emissions in the first place. And the good news is that's really coming along and I think the oil and gas industry is going to be caught by surprise. I mean, what are they thinking in terms of their outlook and what was the behavior that you witnessed from them at COP? Yeah, the thing that I saw in Dubai while going into the venue, ads all over the city. <laughs> this is UAE, so oil and gas companies from everywhere, from all the nationalized players like Aramco and to the private guys like Exxon, a full court press of ads everywhere on their mm. grand plans for carbon removal, biofuels, abundant hydrogen, as sort of an exclusive set of advertising push and ideas around how they're going to provide a lot of energy for the world without emissions, but through all of these new different molecules that they're going to figure out how to make. And, you know, when I was seeing that, having studied this energy transition for a while, as you are an expert on this as well, it struck me that, you know, they really have too rosy a view of their future and how much demand there will be for their product, given where competing technologies are that use electricity. 
And I'll also say, like, this reminded me of an ad I've seen, I think recently, where it's an old newspaper ad from the 1890s when the McLaughlin Carriage Company showed a regal couple in their horse carriage riding on a highway, passing an injured person who apparently rode in an unsafe automobile powered by a combustion engine that was overturned (laughs) on the side of the highway. And this is exactly where these guys are at, telling us how these alternatives like electric vehicles or heat pumps or solar and wind are just not going to be good enough. But I think they're going to be wrong. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. So these new molecules that they're touting are what? Biofuels? Yep. Hydrogen? Lots of hydrogen, lots of biofuels, and of course, very extensive advertising around direct air capture and stuff like that. Right. And I don't suppose they actually touted the size of their investments into direct air capture? (laughs) They did not. Yeah. Funny how that works. This focus on CCS just makes me absolutely mental because, you know, I've been at this a while now. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember writing articles, oh, about 15 years ago, I want to say, saying, what is the deal with these CCS wedges that keep showing up in the future supply scenarios of all these major forecasters and energy agencies? Why is everybody assuming that we're going to have this massive CCS sector materialize when there is no commercial reason to think that it will yet? especially if we're all more or less betting our own futures on it. And to see that 15 years elapse with no significant progress in making CCS real and to see it still being touted now as the way that we're going to solve this climate conundrum while allowing the fossil fuel industry to continue with business as usual, it just drives me crazy. You know, one of the things that we study a lot at Energy Innovation, the firm that I lead, is we look at what are the factors that drive success and fast price drops in certain technologies and what don't. And this is not entirely perfect science in terms of that forecast, but there has been some recent really good research on this, particularly a paper that we really like at EI by Schmidt and Malhotra. I can't remember the exact name of this paper, It came out last year, and what those folks have found is that there are certain features around degree of field customization and degree of ability to mass produce a particular product that drives the prices down of a technology much quicker than others. And so the worst case scenario is something that is non-modular, cannot be really factory produced at scale, and every single field installation has to be highly customized. And that's what CCS is. And that's why we're not seeing much progress in that technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, okay. So in your view, what will cause oil demand to slow down and peak? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On December 20th, the UK's Department for Energy Security and Net Zero released a document laying out its vision for the carbon capture, usage, and storage, or CCUS industry, in the UK. The document, however, was long on aspiration and very short on details. It expounds at length on the government's intention to spend up to £20 billion to support the initial deployment of four CCUS clusters by 2030, which could supposedly store 20 to 30 megatons of CO2 a year and create 50,000 jobs. And it explains why the department thinks CCUS is an essential part of the government's path to net zero. But it doesn't really say exactly how it intends to achieve those lofty goals. After spending not inconsiderable effort to figure out exactly what they are proposing to do, I discovered that it would consist mainly of merely reducing the emissions from petroleum refineries, finding uses for any captured carbon, which means much of it will not be permanently stored away, and relying on conventional steam methane reformation to produce so-called blue hydrogen, which they call low-carbon hydrogen, which results in a net increase in carbon emissions. There is no mention of direct air capture, and only a cursory nod to some undefined potential for bioenergy with CCS, otherwise known as BECS. And the actual storage it hopes to achieve by 2030 is extremely modest. 30 megatons per year isn't quite 10% of the UK's annual greenhouse gas emissions. And the 20 billion pounds the government plans to spend in the effort is just a down payment, where their market roadmap assumes that the price of a ton of CO2 under its emissions trading system will be high, and that there will be, quote, market failures associated with first-of-a-kind technology, end quote. But that's just the beginning of an imagined but undefined path to a purported self-sustaining market after 2035, which anticipates that the government will create new regulatory frameworks and support new business models. In short, the new vision looks a lot like a conventional greenwashing pitch from the oil and gas industry, fueled by public spending, to very little useful effect as far as carbon emissions go. It reminds me of nothing so much as the South Park episode on the underpants gnomes. But the document could serve as a very useful exercise for students needing to develop critical thinking and reading skills to help them distinguish true solutions from industry-sponsored propaganda. To learn more about the different kinds of hydrogen and how they are generated, as well as the UK's hydrogen ambitions, listen to episodes 142 and 143. Item 2. On December 18th, seven European countries pledged to eliminate CO2-emitting power plants from their electricity systems by 2035. Together, the countries account for nearly half of EU power production. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. 
You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.